Hey everybody, welcome to LeafCast. I'm Alex Bluenstein, and as always, I'm here with Taylor Scullin. Hey everyone. Today, we have a really exciting guest, Alan Brockstein from New Cannabis Ventures. But first, a little uh, little, little shout out to our upcoming meetup in Toronto. On May 23rd, we have Mark Noble and Jamie Purvis from Horizons ETF. They just launched the world's first marijuana ETF. That's an exchange traded fund. I figured that one out since the last podcast. Uh, if you're interested in investing in the marijuana space um, or just have a general, you want to get involved in the marijuana space, it's also a great place to meet people. But these guys will have a great understanding of the markets and a deep understanding of all the players who are publicly traded right now and who are planned to be publicly traded. Um, it's May 23rd. Uh, if you want to register, go to leaftoronto.com. And if you're listening to this, use the special discount code LEAFCAST for 20% off your tickets. And tickets are already quite cheap, so it's a great bargain. And we actually talk about the ETF in this interview with uh, Alan. We get into that a little bit. And there's some great, uh, some great insights in there on uh, investing in cannabis in general and also you know, his view on the American and Canadian markets right now. And also a little bit about New Cannabis Ventures, which I think a lot of people, probably our listeners, use to get their industry news. Yeah, so we'll see you on the 23rd, leaftoronto.com, discount code LEAFCAST. And Taylor, why don't we uh, play the interview? Let's roll it. Okay, so Alan, thank you for joining us on the LEAFCAST. It's great to have you here. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Um, I guess just jumping right into it, you know, for those of our, our listeners who, who don't know who you are and don't know New Canvas Ventures, although I suspect most of them do at this point. Um, why can you just give us a brief overview of what New Canvas Ventures is and how you know you got into the cannabis space? Some of your background. Sure. So uh, my background prior to all this was uh, just an equity analyst, and before that, a, a bond analyst. I, my whole career uh, is either on the sell side in trading trading and sales for bonds. And then I moved over to the, uh, what they call the buy side or, uh, you know, investment management. Mm -hmm. And I, that was in 1992. So it has been a long time. And then, uh, I was a principal in a firm in Houston. Uh, I think we were managing about 500 million. Uh, I was an analyst, uh, and a portfolio manager. And I left that job at the end of 2006 and, uh, became an uh, in independent research analyst, uh, working with, uh, you know, maybe slightly more than a handful of funds, uh, and doing a few other things as well. So I was on my own, which was really a, a painful thing at times in terms of business development, all that. And, mm -hmm. uh, but it was also really fortunate because in early 2013, uh, I kind of stumbled into the, uh, cannabis space. And what happened was I was, uh, one of the leading contributors at the time to seeking alpha and, uh, and I would read content there as well. And, uh, so I'm reading this article in February 2013 about a, a, what I have to call it a marijuana stock. I usually use the word cannabis, but I didn't even know that word then. Right. And uh, so the I couldn't believe that that the, these stocks existed. They were terrible companies. So I had a big following on Seeking Alpha. I started to write about it. It really resonated with the crowd. It was an exciting topic. And to me, there was a, a little bit of a personal connection. I was never much of a consumer, I, you know, normal kind of college and post-college Sure. consumption, but it had been like literally 25 years since I'd even smelled cannabis, much less 
participated and just wasn't part of my life. But earlier in my life, it was a big deal, not from a consumer, but I was a libertarian, a big L libertarian. And that's what I did in high school. I was a libertarian. It was like one of my biggest activities. And so I was for all sorts of things, including legalization of cannabis and things that I didn't even care about if it was for me. It was just the right thing. So uh, it all kind of came together and I started uh, looking into the industry and learning a lot and uh, in late 2013, I launched 420 Investor, which is a uh, service, subscription-based service for people who want to learn about the publicly traded cannabis stocks. And I did this at a place where I already had another service. So I was running the two services at once. 2014 hits, and uh, the interest in 420 Investor just exploded. We, we, over the next six months, we added, uh, we ended up with about 2,000 subscribers. It was crazy. Most of them were there just to make short-term money and not to learn. So, yeah. uh, and the market turned. But, but all this work I was doing on the industry uh, got me uh, to to want to be more involved. The publicly traded stocks were, as, as I was saying, a joke. Uh, you know, I was the sheriff of the wild west, and but there was so much more. And I identified. Uh, what still continues to be a big problem in the United States, uh, this will sound weird to your Canadian audience, but it's hard for cannabis companies to raise money and, uh, uh, in the United States, that is. And so uh, I tried one initiative that failed. It's not even worth talking about. But uh, in mid-2015, uh, it finally made sense for me to, to create New Cannabis Ventures as a second effort to accomplish this goal of better connecting the good companies privately held and uh, the quote-unquote good investors, because there's bad investors as well. Right. And so we, we launched New Canvas Ventures, and uh, the real simple story on the front end, we're trying to save people time is a big filter. I, I see so much information, and so New Canvas Ventures publishes about 16 to 20 articles a week. Uh, a lot of it's aggregated, but we're only writing uh, – well, we're typically sharing the content, whether it's press release or stories on – good companies. We don't waste our time with noise. But sometimes, uh, and this is more, more likely where my own contributed content comes in, is sometimes it helps to point out some bad actors. So we do that as well. That's So people, uh, it's been pretty amazing. We have uh, a lot of different ways to consume new cannabis ventures, and maybe we can talk more about that later. But yeah. uh, for me, from a personal standpoint, this has been just awesome because uh, it's allowed me to really cover uh, uh, the industry more and not just the public companies, but we do have, uh, uh, a public company feel, uh, the public companies have started to get better, uh, especially in Canada. That was a big shift for us in terms of willingness to work with advertisers there. But, uh, just a lot of our content, a lot of our readers come from Canada now. And I think you know, maybe this will come out as well. I think Canada is really a, uh, uh, the place to be in terms of the industry and probably investing as well. And uh, there's a whole big global opportunity that Canada could drive now. Yeah, no, I definitely wanted to get into the, the Canadian market and the contrast between the American and Canadian markets. Um, but I, I, I want to stick with New Canvas Ventures just for a moment here, because as a consumer um, of, of, you know, cannabis industry news, uh, you know, New Canvas Ventures is pretty much the first place that that I go but from the sound well, thanks of it, there are a couple of other good ones too but I appreciate that yeah well yeah there there are a few you know content companies uh focus on cannabis popping up um and but it, it sounds from based on your answer that new cannabis ventures is almost trying to fill like a an angel list role for the cannabis industry 
as opposed to a, a publishing company. Is that, is that right? Well, so that's how we make our money in a way. And it's tough. I'm, I'm in Texas. And, uh, uh, so I'm governed by Texas law. Yeah. And, uh, so it's very clear. I'm not a uh, registered investment advisor or a, a broker or anything like that. Uh, I'm a CFA. I, I could be any of that, but I'm not. And uh, and I don't really run a business model that depends on that. Although, you know, I could see us becoming a broker dealer kind of oddly. Uh, uh, not something I really want to do, but I could see that happening. So we we have ways to connect companies to investors without soliciting. And that's the biggest part. And so uh, if, if anybody takes the time to look at our business model and see what's really driving you know, our revenue and who are our, who are our advertisers and what are we doing for them, uh, I would venture to say you will never see us say, you should buy this. We just, that is not what we're doing. Yeah. We're providing information. Uh, I think to the, to the world, uh, we have we're a little heavy on public companies right now uh, compared to where I wanted to be, and we didn't start off. Uh, we we were actually excluding public companies for various reasons, and, uh, and we're starting to see some private companies. We've done a great job. We started with Emblem. Nobody knew who Emblem was, mm -hmm. and we didn't tell anybody to buy Emblem, by the way. And I'm not going to take any credit, but what we did was we allowed Emblem to connect with a lot of people that wanted to know their story and to hear it from them directly. So through our lead gen, we're able to drive traffic uh, to uh, what was then their, uh, their page. It's a little different now. And they just collected boatloads of leads. A lot of these people did invest and uh, they got in at a really low price and made a lot of money. So we're glad about that. And, and that kind of, this was, they were pre-public. So this actually really fulfilled our mission of trying to connect capital uh, with, uh, with with worthy companies. And, uh, and and we've had some other examples, like we took on uh, C.B. Richard Ellis is the world's largest uh, uh, real estate broker. And they're our client for a project uh, that somebody uh, wants to sell uh, the, 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 a cultivation facility in Las Vegas. And again, it's just been amazing. We can't tell people that's a little bit different, uh, because the rules are because it's being advertised by a real estate broker. We can actually be, it's a little bit easier for us to say what's going on, but really what we're trying to do is tell the world, we're only going to work with quality companies. Yeah. There's so much garbage out there. So if we're going to take the time to include somebody on our platform and put our name behind it, then maybe you should take the time to get the notice story. We kind of help tell the story in some ways, but we're not out there telling people to invest or it's not really our job. That's not our job. So our job's really to just bring bring these situations to people's attention. Okay. So the advertising is sort of a lead generation. It's uh, lead topic. gen. And, yeah. and what we've done in the public markets is pretty cool. I don't know if you know much about how atrocious that industry is. And this was one of the reasons we didn't even want to go near it. There were, I didn't want to conflict with what I'm doing at 420 Investor. And uh, I'm, I'm overly conservative on that regards. And uh, I don't buy any stocks myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I never have for uh, when I am doing a trade service. It's actually an ethical violation, in my opinion, yeah. based on the code of ethics for uh, for CFAs. But uh, the... Uh, uh, well, I lost my train of thought there, but on the uh, uh, what we're doing for the public companies is uh, we've created kind of like the Yahoo Finance for these companies. Uh, Yahoo Finance isn't that great, by the way. We are for our clients, uh, the public companies, creating these uh, investor dashboards that have a lot of information 
that will really save people time if they're trying to get uh, what the financials look like, uh, when what was the last financing round, things like that. Yeah. Uh, so that that's what we're doing on the public side. We're not telling, and we're pulling in the content dynamically, which is nice. That helps also, but. Uh, just want to. I like to make sure because a lot of people start to hear that we don't want to be stock promoters and we won't be stock promoters. Right. Okay. Um, and you sort of alluded to uh, some regulatory issues in the states that companies working in the space uh, face. And you know, though most of our audience is Canadian, I think they'd appreciate your insights into the American market. And yeah. in particular, you know, w- what is the situation? like right now in states where cannabis is legal, yep. but obviously, you know, federally, there's still sort of a hostile justice department now. Um, sure. So if we had two hours, uh, we could cover this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess the Coles notes. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually very uh, uh, honored. Uh, just, just the other day, I spoke at the Houston CFA Society luncheon, and this was one of the big topics because, you know, these are investors and they want to know, you know, what's the deal? How can we invest and what are the risks and opportunities? And so yeah. I, investing in cannabis in the United States right now, and I was at a, a institutional conference out in San Jose, uh, uh, which I'll come back to in just a moment. But this was a, uh, eye-opening to me because what, what the institutions want, obviously, is to not touch the plant. And so a couple of things that we're seeing uh, I'll tell you in a second. Let me start at the top because you said it, the coal memo, and there is no coal memo anymore, right? That was that was the former president. So to back mm-hmm. up a little bit more, in 2013, before I launched my service, I was not going to launch it until the coal memo came out. Mm-hmm. That was imperative to me. And the reason for that was that Washington and Colorado had legalized, but the federal government hadn't said a word, and uh, kind of like what's going on right now. So so what? If, if if Washington State or Colorado says that you can do this and that if you follow these rules, but the federal government doesn't care and you're going to go to jail for the rest of your life and have all your assets seized, that's kind of a scary thing. So people were really concerned back then, and we're kind of going through that again. So the Cole Memo comes out in 2013, and there were eight things in there. The, the two that seemed to stand out the most was you can't let it get out of your state and you can't let kids get it. But there were six other things as well. And uh, so everything was hunky-dory until the surprise in November. And so now we're back to where we were in some ways. Now, we're, we're, we're a little bit past that because uh, then – we were dealing. We were looking ahead. We there was not one single recreational dollar of sales that had been made yet. Now, we have not only uh, literally billions of dollars of sales and, and the taxes that go with them, but we also have evidence that the world isn't coming to an end. And so, a lot of people like to say the genie's out of the bottle. You can't stuff it back in. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to think that's true. Uh, and I certainly my the early comments that I've seen out of this administration seem to be. What I think is a false dichotomy, but it's still somewhat reassuring that medical is somehow different than recreational, which uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. There's a lot of people that would self-medicate. I drink wine. I shouldn't have to get a card for for wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so in the United States now, every state is different. You can't do business across borders, uh, which I mentioned. So that means if, you, if you're really good in Colorado, you can't necessarily just – uh, ship your stuff to California. Yeah. You, you know, you have to go and start over. A lot of times, because of residency requirements and other limitations, that means taking either licensing out your IP or just 
you know, reinventing the wheel and putting in a lot of money. It takes a lot of money to reinvent the wheel and just put up that new factory and hire those additional people. There's, you know, a lot of uh, duplication there. So, so in the United States right now, there are no financial intermediaries really to speak of. There's some, but a lot of them are really shady. And so in other industries that pop up, you know, you know, like solar or, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think of things that might've appealed to, to, kind of high net worth people, you know, there'd be brokers that could call them up and, you know, they get their commission and there's, there's very little of that going on. And in the institutional market, you know, some of these hedge fund guys will put money into deals, but they would never put their client money in. That's career risk. So, uh, you know, you're not seeing, you have Cowan and company that covers the industry, but from a very defensive uh, perspective, mm-hmm. they actually provide coverage on canopy growth and then cush bottles, uh, but they're, what they're really trying to do, Vivian Azer, what she's trying to do is really keep her pulse on the industry and you know figure out how it's going to hurt the rest of her coverage list over time, particularly tobacco companies, which I don't think as much. There's probably more opportunities there adjacent, but uh, alcohol industry for sure, and she's been on a warpath about that. So kind of to tell your, your crowd in the Canada what's like in the United States, very hard for good companies to get funded. The institutions – aren't really open to direct investing. What they are open to, uh, to a limited degree, we've seen evidence that they're willing to invest in the ancillary companies, especially those that are operating out in California, okay. uh, the te- you know, technology companies we're talking about. So we've seen like some delivery software companies and uh, yeah. get some funding and things like that. Uh, intellectual property and brands maybe, but very people are extremely careful about uh, investing in uh, dispensaries and cultivation, although you know those entities do get funded, but I'm talking about institutions. And then real estate, this is what I wanted to come back to. That seems to be what they really want to own. And there's a bunch of funds that have popped up. On the New York Stock Exchange, we have this one called uh, Innovative Industrial Properties. The people behind it are very seasoned executives with long track records of you know, some success, if not a lot of success, depending on how you look at it. But we're talking about very legitimate people. They seem to, they seem to not have the cannabis uh, ex, uh, experience. And that's, I think, a little bit of a pitfall. And then that deal, like I said, New York Stock Exchange, it was priced uh, right, right after Thanksgiving, and it was a dud. And, and they also put all their money, half their money, into a questionable story, I would say. I mean, I, I don't think the ad, they're going to lose money on that asset, but it's just not, it's a New York state, uh, cultivation facility and it, it is backstopped by the parent. So that's good. But, um, so that's kind of what's going on in the United States. I, I, I think I covered it. Yeah. So basically ancillary businesses are, uh, you know, sort of normal operations with, except for the cross-border well, stuff. It, but it's not as, you know, it's kind of funny. There's, I think there's stigma issues, and I think there are still some concerns. And I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Uh, so if you're a, a power company and you're supplying power to a Colorado grow that's legal, yeah. you're, you're a money launderer. I myself have been a money launderer. I don't think I have any U.S. touching the plant companies paying me now, but I, I know I took a little bit of money from Dixie uh, Brands uh, uh, at one point. So uh, we're all money launderers. Yeah. And, and so I think you know any sort of institutional investor, you, you have to say, what's the real risk of getting cracked down upon? It's probably very low. but Given the number uh, of people who I are th- implicated. It, in- yeah, I think it, it's, it, that holds off. So 
I see deals out there in the private market. We just took on a new client, not even worth mentioning by name necessarily, but they're on a crowdfunding platform. I like the story uh, a lot. Uh, I feel like they're a good operator. I've, I've talked to them over two years and seen how they've struggled to raise capital as an ancillary company. Uh, I hear stories like this all the time. So it's just not easy. And if you look at Canada, and I've been trying to make this point to people, Canada uh, obviously, you know, the LPs, they raised money back in 14 fairly, fairly easily and with some institutions as well. And, and then things went to, to crap. Uh, you know, there was just a whole bunch of problems uh, initially, with, and people don't necessarily remember that. But in, in, all these stocks went down and down a lot. Thank God for the liberals because that rescued everything. Yeah. And uh, so now we're at the point where, you know, people in Canada, uh, LPs in Canada – they look to the United States for technology. Uh, you have this uh, can of royalty that's got that model going. You have Organogram that cut a deal with the Green Solutions in Colorado. You have uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but we're seeing a lot of that. But now that Canada's cannabis industry is on fire and the capital, the bankers and all that great stuff that we don't have, you're starting to see some ancillary plays and brands and things like that start to develop as well, which is kind of uh, filling in, uh, I think, because you know Canada was very top-heavy on the on the LP side, and we we just weren't seeing that many companies uh, in Canada, and and maybe they're going to be companies like Canada Royalty that that aren't just in Canada, but you know in other places as well. But they raise their money in Canada. Right. So maybe let's let's uh, continue on that vein because I'm I'm curious if you think that. Uh, you know, Canadian businesses are going to be at an advantage versus American counterparts, especially over the next four years. Because obviously, you know, for all the reasons you point out, it's a lot easier to operate in a legal regulated environment. But uh, yep. on the other hand, it's just a smaller market. I mean, California is a bigger market than the entire country here. And the new regulations are, are tough and tough on ancillary businesses, too. So what, what's your view on, on that? Yeah, and gosh, you guys have got to get a better uh, extracts program. Hopefully, that's headed, but yeah, you know, yeah. that, we'll see. So, uh, yeah, and it's really interesting because uh, I, I think there's a couple of perspectives here. First of all, uh, scaling up, and we we haven't even seen a tremendous amount of scaling up yet. We've seen a lot of talk about it in Canada, but you know, you're talking about serving right now. I think right this minute, 160 or 170 thousand patients. You, you could find three or four dispensaries in California that are doing that, okay? Yeah. So so there's a lot of talk about scaling up, but we're going to have to see that execution. Will Aurora and Afria be able to scale up like, like they're promising? And, and I, I don't know the answer, honestly. I hope so. But, uh, but as these companies prove themselves out, and they are proving themselves out, but as they continue to prove themselves out, it's a, of great appeal to regulators and other in other countries and ultimately in the United States. Now, Afria is different from everybody else. They're willing to go into the United States right now in Arizona and Florida. So they're different. Nobody else is willing to do that, or at least, you know, they're not doing it right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I talk to people that tell me they won't do it as long as it's federally legal. So one piece of this is the U.S. market. And uh, it, is there going to be an ability with all this money and the technical know-how to maybe come in and, and, and grab up. And so the, the, I just mentioned Afria and what they've done in Florida and Arizona, but maybe even a bigger phenomenon, it's been amazing, is to see the company uh, in Canada raise money, come in the United States, 
and do the following transactions. One, buy the physical buildings. Two, buy the brands and the IP. Three, establish a management service contract. So I just told you three pieces, and I'll repeat them again so people don't have to back up. One, buy the facility. Two, buy the brands and the IP. Three, get a management contract. So what's left? What I, what I just said is 95% of the whole uh, package. The other piece that's left is the license. So you've seen now two companies, uh, one's called Canadian Bioceuticals, silly name, they've got to change it, but uh, <laughs> they, uh, they did this uh, and they did it in Arizona initially and, and then they just did a, a round two in Massachusetts. So they're going to be big in uh, Arizona, which is medical only, in Massachusetts, which the medical market's been slow, but the it's about to go wreck in July of 2018. So big future opportunity there. And they they did just what I just said. They bought all the stuff except for the license. And, uh, and then you also had uh, people probably are more familiar with Ianthus. And Ianthus, uh, uh, you know, they operate out in New York City. The guys behind it are Americans. The company's in Canada. The money's from Canada. For the most part, although I know some people in the United States that have invested in this, and uh, uh, so again, uh, uh, they're in multi-state now. Their biggest, their biggest uh, play at this moment is uh, Massachusetts, but they're also in New Mexico and uh, Vermont, which, mm -hmm. if that were to go legal, would be good, mm -hmm. and uh, a small, small play in uh, uh, Colorado as well. Uh, which is harder to pull off. It's amazing they were able to do that because Colorado's got pretty tough residency requirements, but that's for the license not to do what they're doing, apparently. So so that's a whole business model uh, that gets them in the United States. Now, the next piece of this, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, is, well, what about the rest of the world? I'm going to say don't worry about the rest of the world except for one thing right now, Germany. And I, I've been telling people, mm -hmm. I told this at the CFA Institute the other day, uh, in CFA society, I should say, uh, Germany may be the biggest opportunity out there. And, you know, I don't know, I, I don't speak German. I don't know Germany that well. I, I've never done that much international investing, but I know that these language barriers and lack of familiarity could really impede the, the ability for, for these German entities to, to get funded, could. And at the same time, I my understanding is uh, that there are Canadian outfits that are going for these licenses mm -hmm. and, and that they have the ability to win them. And, and they have, uh, you may not even know this, but the, the rules are, and I don't even remember the exact rule, but you, you have to have uh, grown commercially a certain amount of cannabis already. So some of these Canadian companies are, are going to qualify where others just can't qualify. Right. So, uh, so there will probably be several Canadian companies that actually are building factories in Germany. Right now it's an import situation, but uh, they're looking for initial 10 applicants and uh, yeah, licenses, I should say. And then uh, uh, you know that should be going, in, I think, next year. So I think that is a huge opportunity. And so when I'm sitting here scratching my head over the valuations in Canada, that's one of the things I like to keep in the back of my mind, that these – Global opportunities, particularly for the LPs I'm talking about, particularly in Germany, uh, really may be something that, that at least protects on the downside. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about the valuations uh, because I think a lot of people are looking at 
these uh, publicly traded Canadian companies, the LPs, and they're seeing prices that seem completely disconnected from any sort of business fundamentals. But I guess, uh, you know, the idea is that they're justified by the potential for growth. So what's your view of the valuations as they are right now? Like, is it just speculation or is there a good case to jump into the market at this point? Yeah. So I've been uh, full time in equity since, you know, 98, let's call it. So, you know, almost 20 years. And uh, I myself am not a venture capitalist, but this is kind of a venture capital market. And so this is in in some ways out of my domain. Like I never thought Amazon was a good investment. I was clearly wrong. And there's a lot. I have a lot of stories like that. So I want to say something. I I want people to understand where I'm coming from. And what I tell my subscribers that I feel like these stocks are very expensive, they're priced, you know, I can tell you how I think it's working and I can tell you how it might not work out. I don't know the future. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think uh, you have to understand a lot of the dynamics, which I'll share with you. But I just want that caveat that that I, I like to find things that are already working and can kind of be justified. And this is a little bit beyond where I have traditionally focused. And uh, so um, that's my my tack. Mm -hmm. So you have a situation right now, I have to warn people, you've got all these bankers, uh, most of them are very young. I have nothing against young people. I know you're a young person, but there's a little experience lacking. And some of these analysts were not even around uh, for the dot-com bubble breaking. And so uh, Mm. there's an incentive for them to be bullish. There's all these banking fees. I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything wrong, but Mm -hmm. you have to understand the system if you're an investor. So there's a lot of people out there. uh, I've seen some numbers that are atrocious. They're just not right. And I talk to the companies about them. The companies really can't control it, uh, in my opinion. I don't think the companies are happy that these aggressive estimates are out there. So I want people to understand that, first of all, that there's a little system here. There's a lot of bankers. They all have an incentive to to put big numbers out there. So that's the first caveat I would have. The second thing is um, that there's a scaling risk. I I mentioned this earlier. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to say, oh yeah, we're gonna have 10% market share and da 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 and the market's this and you know, you can you can do that and you'll come up with some numbers that might justify your stock. But here's the deal. I'll make it the example really simple. If there's 20 companies that are each gonna have 10% market share, do the math. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as 200% market share. So nobody knows exactly what the market's going to be, but I got to tell you, that's probably the easiest thing to figure out how big the market's going to be. You know, 5 billion, 6 billion, 7 billion. You can do that. But mm-hmm. who's going to be the person that actually has a share? That's your first question. Second question is what's a distribution really going to look like? How much, if you have this share, how much do you get to keep? If your company, you know, LP1, are you giving up a ton of your profits to the uh, to the uh, liquor control? You know, whoever mm-hmm. the distribution channel is. So, mm-hmm. I just think there's not enough information out there, and people should take that into account. Now, uh, let's flip it back the other way. Uh, I hear people say these things are too expensive. Their sales are only X. It's trading at 18 times sales. I think that's a silly way to look at things because you really do have to look forward. You can't be looking at what's going to happen pre-legalization. Uh, myself, what I've been focused on, look, and, and I'm having a chat with my members tomorrow because there's so much, there's so many new LPs trading publicly and so much going on 
that even I'm confused. I know they're confused. And so we're going to take about an hour tomorrow night, which will be after this is released probably, but mm -hmm. uh, to really go over these one by one, because I think, I think there's a lack of differentiation going on right now and a lack of appreciation for who's going to compete well in the future. And I don't even have all the answers, but I can tell you just because you've been LP number one, uh, in the medical market, this is a whole new world. You may not continue to be LP1, and there's a lot of things that are going to make you succeed. The ability to grow uh, high quality, low cost, those are obviously part of it, but there's more to it than that. Your branding, mm -hmm. uh, there's just a lot of unknowns, and some companies are not going to be winners. And I think that, uh, you know, when I look out, I don't see that type of differentiation going on right now. Or at least from my perspective. But the right way to value these companies would be to know what their sales and earnings are going to be in the future and then back it up. And it's just impossible. So I'm trying to do a few other things. I'm trying to trying to qualitatively rank who, who seems to have a better chance than others, although that's a tough, tough call. The easy thing for a CFA like me is to kind of do valuations where <clears throat> and this is a little different, and I'm not saying it's the right way, but it helps me, is to say, well, how much, how much uh, do they have uh, in uh, in assets? Well, not assets, but in equity right now, tangible mm -hmm. equity, and adjust their market uh, cap uh, for the uh, all the dilutive securities, and then give them credit for the cash. So you can come up with basically. Uh, let me give you an ex example off the top of my head. Take, take a company like Aurora. They're near the top of the alphabet. You know, they still have some open warrants and all that. But you take all that, you assume it all gets exercised, and you come up with X, this number. Let's say it's $100 million, I'm making it up. And then you can compare all the LPs, and these numbers are still pretty big. Uh, they're trading at uh, pretty much, except for Harvest One, which just went public, which just seems inordinately uh, off-market to me, uh, too low. Most of them are trading at either three times that number or higher, and some of them a lot higher. And uh, that's a pretty big number, in my opinion, uh, uh, for this point in time. And <clears throat> what I like to tell people is that the Canadian companies are better at growing capital than cannabis at this point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're being valued, they raise money, and then they're being valued at a multiple of where they're raising money, basically. So some of the deals have broken down. Some people have already lost money. Uh, buying what they thought were good deals. Uh, I like Marican, so I don't want to say anything bad uh, about where it is now and what's what's ahead for them. But it is a fact that their last uh, pricing round was at two dollars and eighty-five cents, and the stock's at a dollar ninety-four. And there yeah. wasn't a lot of time between there. That was within a month or so. So, yeah. uh, so people can lose money. Uh, Canopy's below its last two offerings. Uh, Trying to think, Afria just did a deal, and it's below its offering. But anyway, I hope that helps. I, I'm very humble about this, and I, I hope I kind of pointed to how the valuations could work out over time. But don't assume that all these guys are going to get 10% market share. They're not. Yeah, yeah. Is there one one company who you do <clears throat> think is uh, is executing really well right now? Anyone who who stands out in your mind? Um. I want to be careful on that one. Uh, sure, it's a, <laughs> kind of a loaded question. Let me answer it this way. Uh, I think that the company that's in front right now is Canopy Growth, mm -hmm. uh, you know, by by all any, any measure. Sure. And I will say they have, and you can. I'm very close with Bruce Lynn. They are a client of ours too. I should disclose. And uh, the 
they've made a lot of mistakes. Bruce Linton would tell you this. He'd be proud of it, and I agree with that. I mean, new companies make mistakes. They learn and they move on. Sure. And uh, what I, where I think the market may be, why I like them right now uh, a lot versus not necessarily saying to buy it. I'm kind of bearish short term on the sector. But why I like that one as a leader the lot, I feel like they're further along. They have multiple platforms. You know, there's some people that have greenhouse only, and uh, you just never know. Greenhouse quality may not over time make it. Now, those people are going to tell me I'm out of my mind, but uh, that's my my view, and it's not just my view, but it doesn't make it right. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so they, they have the greenhouse in case there's a race to the bottom on 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 pricing, uh, and it's you know fully it's built out as opposed to some of these other projects that are not even – I don't want to pick on Aurora, but there's a lot of talk about a project that's not operational yet. And uh, so Canopy Growth's got multiple platforms. They now have multiple geographies. They've done a couple of interesting things recently with uh, their their Craft Grow and now I guess this uh, Canopy River streaming thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's too early for me to weigh in on that, but they're, they're out there. They're executing, and they seem to be way ahead of everybody. Uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, mainly because they got there first, but uh, uh, they've been aggressive. Uh, I happen to be on the other side of both uh, of their acquisitions. I, My favorite stock back in uh, the summer of 2015 that I was telling subscribers about was Bedrican, and then they bought Bedrican. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite stock was Metrum, and they bought Metrum. So it is not true that Bruce relies on me for uh, M&A items. <laughs> uh, so... You know, I kind of like that they've done the consolidation. Uh, so I, I didn't even say it well. They've got not only have the indoor grow and, and the greenhouse and the multiple locations across geographically, but they also have kind of a, a, a going from strict medical on Bedrican to, you know, what they hope will be strict, you know, not just rec or adult use, but, you know, very cutting edge. You know, I'm counting on Canopy Growth to continue what they're doing there in terms of looking like a rec brand. Mm-hmm. Right. Does that make sense? And, and okay. I, I want to point out one other thing just as a little nugget here. So canopy growth has gone down a lot. It's down you know, half, almost 50%. A lot of these yeah. stocks have dropped a lot, but it, it's also underperforming recently. And I try to explain these things to the best I can. And I'm scratching my head a little bit on it. There was some insider selling. There was a down round. There's this Metrum uh, lockup that's ending. There's... Uh, uh, trying to think if there's anything else. Well, I think there's concern over Metrum. You know, they, they knew what they were doing, taking on Metrum. It's not like they bought into it and didn't know. But I think there's some questioning of buying Metrum because of the recall issue. Yeah. So there's a lot of things. And so ebbs and flows right now, it's, it's kind of under – it's been underperforming the sector. And there's another piece to it. I always told people one of the reasons to like canopy growth – and I didn't always like it at every price, by the way. But uh, one of the reasons to like it was – that it was a de facto ETF. Well, now you don't need a de facto ETF. There is an ETF. Yeah. And so I don't know how how much that uh, mattered, but that thing has $120 million of assets and it. it's not it's not an odd lot. And, uh, and it's interesting the way it's constructed because they used uh, probably a smart, smart way of doing it actually, but they, they capped exposure. So instead of just going on market cap, they capped it at 10%. I'm talking about the Horizons, uh, Marijuana, what do yeah. they call it? Horizon Medical Marijuana and Life Sciences Fund, yeah. HMMJ. <clears throat> so if you go back and you look at what happened, there were huge spikes in some of the, the companies that had kind of an over-representation. And those would be specifically Emblem and uh, 
uh, Emerald Health and this also this uh, International Cannabis Corp, which is an NLP. And there was a technical dynamic there. Those companies were benefiting more than other companies uh, that had bigger market caps because they were dis disproportionately higher weighted due to this capping regime. So, uh, so it could be that 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 was conspiring against Canopy as well as people decided, you know what, I'd feel better if I want to own an ETF actually owning an ETF than putting it all on Canopy. Moving their money in, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, thank you, thank you, Alan, for uh, for sharing your insights with us. Much appreciated. I think no a problem. Lot, uh, a lot for our listeners to take away there. Yeah, and you know what, I have to tell you, not that you need to have me back in a month, but I just want to conclude by saying Things change so rapidly. I've been sure. following Canadian. I went up to Canada in 14. Then I did a bunch of tours in 15. I'm going back to. I'll be in Toronto. I'm going to the Lyft conference, and I'll be back uh, at uh, Smith's Falls, the you know the big Tweed factory. Now mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of interesting because when I was there, I actually I was there on a Sunday. It was the Sunday of Mother's Day. Um, and I, I I went with Bruce Linton, so it was empty. But I got to see things, and he he's already told me that it. I'm not even going to feel like I was at the same place. It's And that, that obviously was two years ago. But I can tell you, even two months, things change a lot. And, uh, you know, for anybody that's investing in the space, uh, uh, two years ago, there were seven companies you could buy. Now there's 15, soon to be 19, maybe 20. So mm -hmm. uh, things are changing pretty rapidly. Yeah, well, we would love to have you back on in a month. <laughs> <laughs> I think our listeners will, uh, will need uh, updated advice for sure. All right. Well, they know where to find me. New Cannabis Ventures. It's all free to them. And we have a lot of info there. If they ever need uh, more than that, 420 Investor, uh, I spend probably half my time covering the Canadian sector there. All right. Thank you very much. Really interesting interview there, uh, Taylor, with uh, Alan Broxy of New Cannabis Ventures. Uh, great insight into the industry. Super knowledgeable. If you're interested in investing, great guy to listen to check out his website newcannabisventures.com he's an app as well lots of uh lots of ways to reach new cannabis ventures mm -hmm. um if you're interested in investing you already listened to that podcast and learned a lot but we're having another leaf meetup may 23rd in toronto it's featuring jamie purvis and mark noble of horizon ctf uh the world's first marijuana etf really interesting really insightful guys who will give us a lot of information on the marijuana market, publicly traded companies, and what we can expect in the future of the public marijuana markets. Go to leaftoronto.com to register, and if you're listening to this, LeafCast for 20% off. leaftoronto.com, discount code LeafCast. That's all for us. See you next time.